0: I'm just going to kick my cat out of the room because she's scratching something. Twitch. Oi. Take it. Oh, her name is Twitch because I know that sounded like
1: bitch, but she. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or not. She was kicking it as well, wasn't she? Was she? It. she was kicking that cat. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just bit her across the room. No, she's too clever for me and fucking head um so yeah, it's classic so i mean it's, it's kind of our aesthetic she'll be back oh she will she's the worst like she's absolutely
1: i think that's a line actually natural news in zoom it's kind of my aesthetic for it you all know, to TikTok. it's fantastic
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we like to say is actually if we keep
3: a really low like low bar it helps our guests feel more comfortable <laughs> i also have a a sleeping dog under my desk who at any moment might wake up and bark at some noise in the street. So, you know, there's that to think of too.
0: I have distracted my dog with um, a complex cheese puzzle and have locked my door, <laughs> but she will probably still find a way to kind of interrupt the podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah. My dog's too stupid to um, sort of <laughs> flinch at anything. She's just down here sleeping. I don't have any pets, but I think I might make animal noises just to feel part Just to get involved. <laughs> oh, please, please do. <laughs> <laughs> Again... <laughs> That's very good, Erica. (laughs) If if we're talking about our own personal brands, then there you go.
0: Here we go. This is my professional radio voice now. Hello and welcome to Lol My Praxis. Today we are biting off more than we can chew as we speak with two incredibly impressive guests at the very same time. We have thus far had zero technical difficulties. Um, (laughs) We have in the Zoom room today Professor Erica Fudge and Dr. Elsa Richardson. Erica and Elsa are currently based at the University of Strathclyde and co-teach a module titled Fleshy Histories, Meat Eating and Meat Avoidance, 1500 to the Present Day erica's work emerges from the realms of renaissance studies and animal studies and engages everything from cows to bladder control she's the author of many many books and is the director of the british animal studies network elsa is a new generation thinker and currently holds a Chancellor's fellowship in the history of health and well-being her first book was on second sight in the 19th century and she's now working on the histories of nutrition alternative diet cultures and vegetarianism Yum yum. Uh welcome to the podcast, both of you. Sorry <laughs>
2: you're having it. Yum yum. yum, yum.
0: What is that? I did that I did that for you. I thought you'd enjoy it. Yummy. Yummy. Oh
3: good. Oh. So it's a callback to
0: a previous episode. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I made the mistake of like, I don't know what happened to my voice, but I just went like, yummy. And then she's never let like, go. Oh. Uh, so, 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 anytime the food gets mentioned, then I get ripped. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, thanks, thanks very much for having me on. So, we, we cobbled together the bio, but did we do all right? Have we got. I'm glad you got bladder control. <laughs>
1: That's really important. Oh, good. Okay. I'm <laughs> Is it? <laughs> what is it about bladder control that you've done? Well, <laughs> it's a lifelong interest. Uh, really? Okay, here's the reality. Um, I wanted to know, I was reading a book on laughter in the 17th century, um, and it described laughing as people, you know, kind of breathing deeply, da da, da and they be pissed themselves. <laughs> be pissed. So I sat in the British Library while I was reading that, and I thought to myself, that's really interesting. Can a dog be piss itself, or does a dog just piss? So I went away to find out if there was the subjectivity involved in being a dog in the seventeenth century that allowed a dog to piss itself. And it turns out, in many ways, there there was an orthodoxy that the dog could not piss itself; it could only piss mm. because a dog lacks the self control that a human has, and therefore, if you piss yourself, you are acting like a dog. Which is the
0: worst. That's interesting. See, I, I, was, I thought it was going to go around the lines of like piss yourself laughing in terms of the ability of a dog to, to express joy
1: because my dog has definitely pissed itself from joy
0: before. <laughs> oh, not a dog!
1: <laughs> so is that well, a very I suppose what thing? they would have said in the Renaissance was joy, you know, that would be like joy scarecrows, really, it looks like joy, but it's just a stupid dog with no reason. And to have a self to piss, you'd have to have the reason in action to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd like them to tell that to yeah. Luna. She has a very strong sense of self. Um,
2: <laughs> I wonder, though, like if you talk about like pissing yourself with laughter, where does like shitting yourself with fear come from? Is that, <laughs> is that the same line? Because I don't think... Because I was just thinking we say that people shit themselves with fear, but animals don't shit themselves with fear, right? Can, can a dog beshit itself? Well, I guess they can get diarrhoea.
0: Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> so that's a fear um, response?
3: That seems more like a dietary <laughs> element. I don't know. Also jump in. <laughs> There's a lot here. I don't even know where to begin. One, I still disagree, you know, I mean, obviously I disagree with your your uh was it your 17th century sources, Erica, did you say? I can't quite remember. Because, you know, I think that my in my own experience of uh you know being having a companion animal, a small dog, is that she has immense self-control. You know, that really there is kind of you know she's asked in so many ways to exercise self-control and especially around peeing, you know, or I can go for hours and hours and hours. She's like a kind of camel in that sense. And I feel personally offended (laughs) because we have an incredibly badly trained dog, but the only thing that we've ever managed to train her to do is not to pee in the house. And, you know, so I feel like personally affronted by the idea that
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say, I also am personally confronted by the 17th century source, but this is what they thought in orthodox terms. But what's really interesting is what the kind of orthodox philosophy about pissing and many other things to do with animals was, is not what actual people who lived with actual animals actually Mm -hmm. knew and believed.
3: Which is the same today with behaviorists. You know, behaviorists are kinds of animals also, right? You know, I think anyone who has a dog and lives with a dog Knows that the kind of common behaviorist account of, you know, dog dogs kind of automaton like behavior is is nonsense because you know it makes absolutely no sense.
2: I mean, for any of those accounts to make any sense, like the dog has to be slightly intelligent, and my dog is the shittest dog in the world. Like you have to ask her if she needs the toilet, <laughs> and then and then she's like, oh my god, like actually yes I do, and it's the same time every day same time it's getting fed she doesn't have an internal clock it's are you hungry and she's like oh my god
3: yes I am <laughs> <laughs> but do you, uh, do you have a spaniel yes <laughs> <laughs> yes spaniel shade. I love it yes. okay <laughs> I mean I, but also but no shade because I think that my dog suffers from being too clever mm-hmm. and crafty oh. and I think when you know Close your ears, Morag. But when we get another dog, I'd quite like to get a, a thicker dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I totally less, yeah, less problems. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, less it, I, can I
1: also say that Morag is capable of great disdain? Oh, so that when I've ever met Morag. She looks at me and she's basically, but you have no food in your pocket, Erica. Why would I be in I any know. way? She doesn't give me
3: for free. She's a what is it? Mm. cupboard love. Mm. She's got mm. cupboard love, for sure. You have to earn but it. it's more than
1: that. It's, it's disdain. I feel disdain oh, yeah. for me,
3: Well, well she, you know, she feels it for most people. I mean, for oh. me, mostly. <laughs> 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 this is reminding me of Louisa's cat. Uh,
2: queen of psychological warfare. She's, she's awful. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: she bullies the dog. I think one of the good things about being really stupid, if you're a dog, is it's just it's always the best day ever. Like mm-hmm. Willow's never mm-hmm. had a bad day. Seventeenth <laughs> century humanists be like. My... Ladder control. Up in here, up in here. So, um, we like to curate a jingle for our guests using a kazoo because we don't have any musical talent um And the the game is name that tune, and why is it relevant to your research interests?
0: Normally, it goes very badly. so um <laughs> good luck. <clears throat> it's all McDonald's, and he had
1: a farm. Yes, we he a farm. yes, yeah.
0: We go! Oh, this is <laughs> the <laughs> fastest one we've ever had. <laughs> 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 this is the fastest. So, wh- why is why this, is this like, also? It was just very difficult to come up with a
2: relevant song yeah i don't know if you guys have any suggestions but when we're thinking about meat avoidance and like music we couldn't really think of anything songs
3: yeah i don't know if many i don't not not sure the vegetarians have really inspired many songs mm. oh meat is, murder. Like, meat yes. is murder
0: yeah uh, true i was going to no. like man man eater oh yeah that's pretty good yeah
1: oh i had um well, I'm too old, I'm older than you, but Toto Coelos, I eat cannibals. Because to me, it made sense that if you're eating animals and animals have eaten worms and it's a renaissance thing. <laughs> I played it with students at the beginning of a seminar and they stared at me on Zoom. I had it as a, um, an introductory tune.
0: I mean, we're definitely going to post that out with this show. Yeah,
1: <laughs>
0: it's, a it's a renaissance thing. You, are you saying cannibalism is a renaissance thing sorry I no i'm
1: sorry <laughs> well i did because they knew humans tasted a bit like pork or chicken mm-hmm. occasionally depending on who you're reading but what they used to be- really think about was so you eat a pig a pig eats the leftovers from your kitchen which will include some of the worms that have been spontaneously born in the leftovers and those worms may have already have eaten let's say a dead body which mm-hmm. could be someone you're related to, so that when you eat the pig, you're eating the worms who've eaten a human. who've eaten- mm. Okay,
0: so are we saying, are you basically saying that, that there was an old lady who swallowed a fly is actually a Renaissance text? Renaissance philosophy because of the swallowing idea. a fly. Well, there was. Renaissance philosophy,
1: yeah. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to go that far. There was a young lady who gave birth to rabbits. What? Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> Agnes Bowker. Oh. Okay. Well, no. It was a cat. I'm sorry, she gave birth to a cat. There were rabbits that gave, there was someone who gave birth to rabbits. Yeah, there was somebody else who gave birth to rabbits, though. I mean, how
2: did that work? Like, were people just really sick and she just hid them under her skirts? Or, like, what, how, <laughs> how did how did she get away with this?
1: Well, OK, Agnes Bauker's cat, I'm trying to remember the story. Agnes Bauker gave birth to a cat and it was attested as a true fact, by important people within the village. So the local past minister, Mm. some school teacher or something like that. And in terms of what was the value of, what evidence proved in that period was what they had. They asked the people, like the midwife, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, aha, They did a test and they said, Well, do you know what it looks like a flayed cat that somebody's dropped in boiled water? Because we'd all know what that looked like. So they flayed a cat and dropped it in boiled water and went, It's a trick. Look, she gave birth to a dead cat that had been flayed and dropped in water. So they did experiments. (laughs) Because you know, in that period, one of the things that you might have believed was if it was beyond natural, unnatural. It could be supernatural. That is, mm-hmm. God sent it as a message. And so a three-headed pig would have been a message to you know, humanity to stop your gossiping or be better humans and so on. And so within their frames of reference, it's a believable thing. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Erica, would you fit in with a kind of broader like, understanding or discourse around kind of monstrous births? Yeah.
1: absolutely they are sent by god to um in the early 17th century they're sent by god to send a message and we should be interpreting it's later on that you get um in sort of in the period after the royal society starts in the 1670s people start saying well the pig was kicked in the stomach by another pig and i wonder if that had an impact so they're beginning to do natural suggestions
0: okay
1: that's why they would always pin the production of bestiality—that is, mm-hmm. the thing that the horse and the human gave birth to, the horse obviously giving birth to outside the church as a warning to everybody else.
0: Who can gaze judgmentally upon Derrida's naked body?
2: Mm. Yeah, quite relieved that I work in the relatively logical 19th mm-hmm. century. Or do I? How logical was the 19th
3: century? How do <laughs> you get yeah, the 19th century? I, I, don't, I know. don't think we can describe the 19th century. <laughs> that <laughs> that was carrot dangling <laughs> there. I, was... I mean,
0: I work twentieth, 21st. <laughs> carrot dangling, is that a vegetarian?
3: No, that was,
2: that was trying to bait Elsa to
3: tell, <laughs> telling me about the 19th century being illogical. <laughs> I mean, thank goodness it is, because oh. what a bore it would be if it was entirely, you know, Disenchanted in a barbarian sense—that'd be dreadful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the 19th century is, you know, is, is my my own personal favourite century. Um, partly because it's full of absolute crackpots um, who are doing, you know, interesting and weird things. Um, yeah, yeah, including vegetarians. Yeah, uh, the, the best guys <laughs> of all. Like, I think we're—are we
2: all vegetarian yeah. on this call? I think we uh-huh. are, aren't we? I we Erica, can, I do, can
1: I be holier than I and say I'm a vegan? vegan. Right, moving on.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How do you know if somebody's a
1: vegan?
0: Because, because they
1: tell they you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is great. We we um uh, last week we had a, a chat with um, Nicole Seymour, who is an eco-critic who's working on a, a new project to do with vegetarianism and also something to do with glitter. Um, and has a lot to do with uh, irony and comedy and um, why we should be laughing with vegans rather than at them but I like to take this opportunity to just laugh at them so
2: um. (laughs) on that note we always ask our guests as well for a boring fact about themselves so like if you have to actually think about it it's not boring (laughs) okay because we hate you know when you go to a conference or it's like some sort of awful like staff icebreaker and they're always like oh do an interesting fact we're like no we will not. <laughs> I watch cookery
1: programs.
2: Boring. Love uh, it. Okay. I'm interested
0: in this, though. I also love it. I watch cookery programs, too. Do you watch cookery programs uh, with meat
1: dishes? Oh, God, yes. Well, that's the yeah. only ones there are. I watch American ones in particular. Yeah. Just okay. as a kind of, I like to pretend it's an anthropological exercise, but really it's just brain death in front of the telly. <laughs> it is just the kind of how much fat, how much sugar. Mm, oh, my, my God. God. And you put oranges with your meat. Yes,
3: all the time. Why do they do that? Sorry, Elsa, what was yours? Uh, Okay, we're related. Boring fact about myself when I can't get to sleep, I imagine that I am the presenter of a cookery show, (laughs) (laughs) but making a really simple dish. So, you know, like in my mind, I'm like, you know. You know, it's like making an omelet or something, you know. And mm-hmm. I would say, you know, to get myself to sleep, I make the most kind of boring dish in the slowest and most involved way, and I imagine describing each single tiny action. So there you go. I feel like this would keep me up rather than put me to sleep. Yeah, no, <laughs> no it's so boring. You have to like, it has to be so monotonous and so kind of like so involved. Mm-hmm. You know, like literally, like you know, one thought would be. Go to the cupboard, open the cupboard door, take the frying pan from the—you know, like it has to be that in depth. So Nancy, then
0: I would be like, where like, did I put the frying pan? I never put <laughs> them back in the same. It would stress me out. It, it'd
2: be like a to-do list. <laughs> like I can't.
0: Had... I also I can't fucking make an omelette. I know I know they're supposed to be easy. They always become scrambled eggs. So this is my idea of a nightmare
3: rather than a way to get to sleep. Um, each to their oh. own. I feel like, you know, I, you know, I, I imagine the audience. It's uh, it's a very soothing exercise for me.
0: I love it. I, part of me wishes that it was more of a sense of, like, you just imagine yourself in, like, a Nigella fashion, of, like, swanning around in <laughs> silk in midnight, being like, oh, <laughs> and now I will go to the fridge and... Pop it in the microwave. The, the,
3: the microwave. microwave. Have
0: a decadent... Slice of cake, <laughs> lovely cake. Oh, I,
3: just, I love Nigella. I her friend's birthday recently made some of her um, like a brownie recipe from Nigella, and she's just so. I mean, she's outrageous. It was li- the brownie recipe was literally just melt bars and bars and bars of dark chocolate and mm. combine it with three to four packs of butter, and that was <laughs> it. That was it. And I'm they were sure. great. I've got to say, they were extremely good. It's shameless. Incredible. And it's
2: just the, the caressing and just. She knows her audience. She knows what she's doing. <laughs>
3: she knows what
2: she's doing. We asked you for your Tinder bio, so it is. which was great. Um, so do you want to. I don't know who wants to go first. And then we decide whether we would swipe left or right on your Tinder bio.
1: Well, I had I like big cows, and I don't
2: know why. <laughs> I, mean, I like this. I think that's a work of art.
3: Um, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of beautiful. That is a work of art, Erica. I don't think it can be taught. Really.
1: Yeah, but, uh, just it's so top cow. Cow. I just think talking cow. could have? I like big vegetarians, and I don't know why. Or...
2: No, 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 no. The cows, the cows.
1: I like the cows,
2: I like and I also like the, the, sort of, I think the. Cows are great. Yeah, I like the admission of no no idea why they're just neat they're great i I just i'm just i'm into it
1: yeah
2: Yeah. (laughs) no apologies (laughs) don't apologize don't don't you know we don't shame kink shame
1: i should have gone historical i should have said i like 17th century cows and i don't know why oh do you not like the modern cow i do
0: actually so (laughs) yeah
2: yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) in terms of age
2: range you know on
1: tinder we can go
0: is there a
2: fundamental difference between a 17th century cow and a modern day cow oh god yes oh yeah i Well, uh, oh dear, uh, again,
1: life expectancy of a dairy cow has now gone from, well, They, I, I read a manual from the 17th century, late 16th century, in fact, if I'm being accurate, and it said uh, works 10 years or more. So that was the kind of expected working career. Uh, whereas now I think it's two pregnancies. Oh, God. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. And they're different shape and size because they are, you know, being fed. Mm-hmm. All sorts of horrors to get mm-hmm. them to be yeah. productive and stuff.
3: What's the life expectancy of a cow, you know like if you of a cow like I you know if you just kind of left the cow be and fed it and looked after it how long could a cow live? I
1: think mean, it's about know. twenty
0: years. Yeah, so my, my partner it. is um, actually works my partner is a cow. A <laughs> My partner is a cow and I love him Uh, (laughs) But yeah, he works um, uh, like related to agricultural communications and is actually filming cows today, I think. So um, he's also vegetarian. They always find it really funny when they arrive on site and he's like, so what kind of cows is it today? They're like, whatever they are, you're not going to enjoy it. Um, (laughs) If they're meat cows, if they're dairy cows. I mean, they are treated like in, in these farms, like, I don't know, well quote unquote but it's Mm. still just an interesting one um but yeah generally um what what he finds interesting as well they're always referred to as the beast um particularly on scottish farms they refer to them as the beasts rather than a particular cow or cattle well Um, that's
1: that's very renaissance because the word beast is cow Mm, in renaissance whereas cattle means general
3: stuff Ah, okay so your beasts are always your cows Mm. and cattle as in it could be a mix of A kind of mix-up bag of cows and sheep and pig.
1: But -hmm. also, cattle could mean chattel, so it could also mean your piano and your Mm -hmm. table. Or, you know, people,
0: right? That was...
1: uh... I think by... Well, you know, they did have slavery. (laughs) I'll be honest, I didn't come across any slaves, but they did have it. Um, But, yeah, um, feudalism had ended by the time I get there. Because God knows I'd have been cross if it had still been (laughs) going. I'm now going to look up how old is a Chillingham cow? Because you know, is it the Chillingham cows? They're the kind of feral cows up in Northumberland.
2: There are feral cows, sure. Because to me, that sounds like an oxymoron because cows seem so chill.
1: Oh, I think
0: they're pretty cows. not chill. I think this is kind very of like, oh my god, yeah, more people die every year from being trampled by cows than by mm-hmm. like I don't know, shark bites or something like that. Um. Cows are the sharks of the land. Um... (laughs) See, we told you this podcast was really stupid. (laughs) Really,
2: really academic.
1: (laughs) I type in oldest Chilean cow and you'd think it would just say 46 or something and it's just not. Must include oldest.
2: Maybe they're just like, they're so feral that they just can't even tell. Mm. They defy age. Mm -hmm defying society defying i find it you got it oh cool okay go for it
3: And um, okay so it's i wrote um <laughs> uh, modern crank would like to meet bean eating sandal wearing hat refusing ghost seeing war avoiding collaborators will travel to any historical periods good sense of humor essential <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay i want to i want to dig before i decide on swiping um what kind of hats are you refusing and what kind of ghosts are you mm-hmm. wanting to see here
3: I guess the hat refusing was in reference to um, this kind of caricature of a kind of interwar cranky vegetarian figure who's always mm-hmm. pictured scandalously for the interwar period not wearing a hat, and then oh. this is seen as being kind of you know um, really far too radical. Um, so and also. Maybe, actually, if I dig deep into that a little bit, I don't think I particularly like hats all that much. So maybe, I've, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pro-hat refusal. Mm-hmm. As someone who doesn't really suit them myself, um, you know, I've, yeah, I'm anti-hat. There you go. I've said it. I'm anti-hat.
2: Strong <laughs> <laughs> um, words on this podcast. Um, but what, I know. but yeah, why? Yeah. Was it just to fuck with society, or was there an actual reason for not wearing hats? Was it just how they thought they'd be drawn, they should draw it that way because it's so shocking, like, was there even a reason?
3: Yeah, so the hat, hat refusal is um, I guess could be read as being kind of part of the rational dress uh, movement or the um, um, rational, uh, rational dress reform movement which basically was um, a kind of broad ranging um, social movement started in around That kind of starts getting going around the kind of towards the end of the 19th century, but there are some rumbles in the middle of the 19th century, uh, run by men and women who were uh, interested in or invested in uh, the idea that basically, you know, what you wear has implications for your health. So obviously, this is like the 19th century. So this is the moment in which women are, you know, trussed up in corsets, which are doing kind of um, all sorts of dreadful things to their internal organs. And men are also, you know, dr- ordinary everyday dress for men in that period is is still really kind of buttoned up and is really quite intricate and um, I imagine horrendously itchy. Uh, what would be better would be uh, to wear kind of looser fitting clothing, um, to kind of, uh to yeah, get rid of um, this kind of uh, insistence on wearing hats in public, um, and also most scandalously to some, to wear sandals and to allow one's you know feet to feel the kind of the fresh air uh, and to kind of be uh, set free from those kind of tight shoes. Oh, so i what, what were they thought of uh, Lady Gaga's meat dress? <laughs> well, also like I feel as if also. I feel like if we're talking about Lady Gaga's meat dress, um, we should acknowledge that Lady Gaga was not the first to wear the meat dress. Um, Please tell me more. Shots yeah, fired. My, my, my I history know. of meat dress knowledge well, is surprisingly sparse. I've fired that shot and then immediately forgotten um, the name of the movie, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, uh, it was. It definitely was not Original Meat Dress Artist. This is what I'm Googling. Original Meat Dress Artist. Um, let's see. Uh we yana Starbuck first displayed uh, in montreal in let's see i think in the 90s anyway oh. my point is <laughs> lady gaga was not the first <laughs> let's acknowledge her uh, her <laughs> forebears there what would they make of the beat dress well i think they'd be probably quite horrified um mm. because i think it's not entirely the case but it's Predominantly, the case that those involved with uh, various kind of rational dress societies were often also involved in the vegetarian movement, or also Uh often interested in, you know, um, finding uh, alternative materials for clothing that did not involve um, fur or feathers or leather. So I think they'd be horrified. They're more, we think more kind of like cotton sacks. Okay. It's more important. Cotton I'm, sacks and sandals.
2: I'm interested in the oh, sandals hot. because obviously you're saying that you want like the, the toes out in the breeze. So does this mean that there's a sort of historical precedent for thinking that socks and sandals is just the worst?
3: Uh, as someone who frequents a sock and candle, I entirely disagree. I think that's a really good look. See, I was going to go to the question of is this why vegetarians all own Birkenstocks? I think this might be the beginning of Birkenstocks. I think <laughs> I it's Erica line, a lineage that you can trace for sure. I guess, like, I don't, interesting. I mean, I feel like uh, <laughs> Annabella Pollen at Brighton. Um, who's an amazing uh, professor of kind of uh, design down there would have m- more accurate things to say about this, but just off the top of my head, I was wondering whether the kind of interest in sandals that starts to emerge in the early 20th century is also about like a kind of interest in like the ancient world and the oh. ideas of kind of health in you know kind of Greek and Ro- Greek and Roman civilizations where you know they did wear a lot of sandals. Um mm-hmm. same as a jet.
0: I mean we all remember that gladiator <laughs> sandal trend from the early two so. thousands. Exactly.
1: It comes around, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Closest I can get in the Renaissance is that they used to say if you're gonna wear a nightcap, you should have a little hole at the top to let,
3: you know, kind of your head breathe. Ah, interesting. Uh, what kind of understanding of the body is at work there, Erica? You know, is your head
1: physically well, hot? I suppose it's that sense of if your head is hot and it's trapped, the heat is trapped by your attractive woolen bed cloth, bed hat, then it will simply feed back into you and you will generally overheat. Whereas actually, it might not be the same as sandals because they wouldn't necessarily have worn sandals, even though they revered the classicals. I haven't ever, although, no, actually, Inigo Jones in some of his stage designs has kind of pretty, you know, kind of strap up your, uh, your calf um sandals and things like that but i think day-to-day wear well they emptied their toilets in the street Mm -hmm. so i think sandals are probably unlikely. but people would also have bare feet of course poor people so you know yeah yeah wasn't that the shocking
0: thing about the um, mask of blackness that it was um the kind of like strapped up ankles and gossamer wafty clothing that Anne was wearing, on top of the, you know, the use of blackface.
1: But yeah, it was, I think it was, it, it, was, it was the ankles,
0: the, the real, the real,
1: the yeah. real
3: issue.
1: Yeah, I think the blackface was the, the real problem.
3: Because <laughs> <laughs> it took
1: so long to get on, but they couldn't take it off before yeah, they so were dancing. The mask. Yeah. So they just had to, instead of getting off the stage, taking off your costume and coming back on as the queen, you just carried on dancing with your... Blacked up to your elbow and up, you know, your neck, your decolletage, and all of that. So, but I'm impressed. You know that that's very excellent, Alex. Well done.
0: Oh, it's because I had to teach a course on 17th century um, post-colonial 17th century as which, an of courses. As someone who focuses 21st century poetics, was my I've learned a lot. <laughs> They employed ECR, but I am actually interested in terms of like the kind of is there an overlap between um like race and food in the Renaissance, Erica? Or and I'm I'm sure there is also as well, Elsa. Like there's it seems to be particularly this kind of animal studies perspective that you both work both work within. Is that something that comes up at all in any of your research?
1: Well, I think there's there's um Anthony Pagden, who's the historian of kind of colonialism and the period says that one of the things that the travellers to uh, what is now the West Indies discovered was that they'd get to an island and the islanders would always say, no, 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 we're not the cannibals over there. they are the cannibals (laughs) And so you go to the next island and they go, no, 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 you've got it wrong. It's over there. And, you know, so there is that sense of everybody has a taboo. Every culture's got the taboo. Mm. Um, And so you start to, they start to write about, you know, they eat insects. And so, you know, it's, it's just very simple category to You know, what is it that this culture is willing to put in its mouth, and if it's not what we are willing to put in our mouths, and they somehow clearly are uncivilized, barbaric, and so on and so forth, and you know to the extent that even the narratives of cannibalism, which might be ancestral cannibalism, you know the kind of memorial cannibalism, that's forgotten, and it's not until later in the 16th century when Montaigne, the French philosopher, Points out that you know hanging, drawing, and quartering somebody may actually be more barbaric than eating a small piece of the flesh of your dead ancestor as a kind of mark of respect and love. Of course, they're just cannibals, and we are running a good judicial system and <laughs> none of that. Type strong of on crime and strong on the causes of crime and all that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: why is it that when we think about meat and meat avoidance and flashiest rates that it always comes back to cannibalism
3: that's a really good question we can't escape it we absolutely can't escape it and i think it's because i mean erica you might have something more to say about this because i think you've watched on it more but i think i think it comes back to the fact that when we think really start thinking about meat eating and consuming animals what it inevitably brings us back to is the idea that we might also be edible. I think really thinking deeply about what meat is um, confronts you with the horror of your own edibility.
1: And I think, yeah, no, no, I totally agree. And I think on top of that, there is that sense in which, and this gets talked about in the Renaissance a lot, and I'm sure it does in the 19th century as well, this idea that you you are what you eat. And so if you are eating meat in some ha- way or other, your identity, your being has had to take that meat in. And so you get kind of medical texts, you know, I leave rams meat for those who would be ramish. And so that's sort of a joke, but at the same time, there is a sense of the kind of thing you're eating will impact the kind of person you are. Mm. And that, you know, that can be really fantastic. So it's things like, um, I'm trying to think, I think it's something like, if you have a bad headache, eat chicken's brains. And it's just this kind of, uh, uh, how? But, you know, but the medical system works because a headache is a mark of something like being hot and dry and a chicken's mm. brain is very wet and cool. And so that, it, it's that kind of balancing. Yeah, almost like humours. Yeah, yeah, it is the humours, absolutely. And that meat and absolutely what you're eating is dictated by what you are. So I'm sanguine. I know this because I've done a test online about it, yeah, so it must be true. It's been <laughs> and what that means is, and this is interesting to me, I should eat vinegar, and I like pickled. Mm. I'm a big pickled onion fan, so clearly ah. I'm balancing my sweetness with mm-hmm. the pickledness that I'm also eating. So I'm, you know, innately and inherently living a good balanced life. Mm.
0: you are what you eat because uh, I, I like this because it's something i've not really thought about before because for me the the narratives about eating something to then sort of like accompany a particular state of being to me is a really like very much orientalized narrative these days right in terms of um uh rare goods or sort of you know rhino horn that kind of thing and it's it's very much seen as a very um othered process but I mean, I'm now also thinking of people like Jordan Peterson, um, who decides that the raw meat diet is is the best diet for for the red-blooded American, right? So there's kind of something interesting happening there in terms of you are what you eat. So what's actually going on then between uh, right-wing men and their, uh, their diets?
3: Um, meat and masculinity, I mean, let's get into that. That is fascinating. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. You know, if, I guess maybe this begun maybe, what, a decade ago, I think this has been ramping up this idea of um, a return to meat. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think we saw it really beginning perhaps with that kind of nose, that trend for that kind of nose-to-tail eating. You know, this idea that you eat the whole animal. And I think that, you know, part of that kind of nose-to-tail eating maybe came from quite a good place. You know, I'm not, I don't think, I'm not going to draw a line between that directly to Jordan Peterson. (laughs) But I think what underpins that. There's something in the kind of deep in the belly of the beast there, as it were, um, which is is about, um, is about an idea of kind of f- flesh and particularly different particular types of flesh, as in beef, particularly steak, especially um, that has, um, I don't know, that is imagined to have a kind of magical virility imbued within it. I think it comes back to what Erica was saying a moment ago about, you know, categories and hierarchies and the way that these categories and hierarchies structure what it is that we eat. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, often, um, I mean, this is kind of, you know, this is like Mary Douglas, Claude Levi-Strauss' argument, um, but what is interesting for me is how often those foods which are seen as having the kind of, as being the most powerful, You know, so in this case, perhaps steak, perhaps very rare steak are also those foods which are, you know, the closest to being disgusting or the closest to being corrupting or the closest to being taboo. Right. So like, again, to bring about cannibalism, I think that one of the reasons that cannibalism keeps coming up when we talk about meat eating is that. We might want to think about it as being a category in and of itself as an entirely different activity but what we keep coming up against is the fact that perhaps it actually exists on you know on this within the same scale as Mm -hmm. um and yeah there's so much to say about meat (laughs) and masculinity
2: is this why all queer women
3: are vegetarian that is also a really good question. <laughs> yeah, I think, <laughs> which is also, cute, you know, I think, um, you know, vegetarian or queer is a, is... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the, it, it's interesting the kind of history, history of, I think it's possible, I think it's possible to trace the kind of history of queer vegetarianism right back into the 19th century um, to figures like, you know, um, like new women, like Mona Caird you know, this new woman writer who has this, gives this amazing speech at one point in the kind of 1890s where she says, um, basically, she aligns what she sees as the kind of plight of women to the plight of animals. And One of the things that she says is that, you know, men cannot be reformed, men will not be reformed until they leave off being a beast, a bird of, a beast of prey, a bird of prey to the kind of uh, the lesser, uh, the lesser or the defenseless animals. And I guess what she's trying to say there or the link that she's trying to make way back in the 1890s is towards a kind of like sense that there is something in violence which unites the experience of men and women. But I was going to say
1: on top of that, there's a kind of a sense of meat eating as having a place within heteronormative relationships. And so a lot of the historical stuff... Um, that we look at um, when we're teaching this class, go back to this idea of, you know, in times of poverty, it would be the man who got the meat and the women and the children would get a little bit of it and the woman would get even less. Mm. And so there's an idea that, you know, he is the one who's out there labouring, she is the one who is inside, closeted and giving birth to 15 children and so on, that actually he has the meat. And so I suppose if you're thinking of alternative households, you're also thinking of alternative ways of being a household. Um, And I think that's, it's kind of one of those interesting things that seems absurd because we're all probably lucky enough to live in households where we don't have to worry about who's going to get the protein and who's not. Mm. But there are things, so the thing I always think about in relation to that is in my household, very nice middle-class household, my mum, who was a teacher, so she had a job, did all the cooking. She always did the cooking. Um, and on Sunday we'd always go to church and then we'd have the Sunday roast, and Dad would always carve the chicken. The chicken would be brought to the table and Dad would be handed the fork and the knife and he'd carve it. Now, where does that come from? It's not that my mum's not capable of carving. She's perfectly capable of carving. It goes back to, of course it does, it goes back to the early modern period, where if you were the owner, if you were a good, rich uh, householder, you would have a servant whose special skill... Was to carve the meat. So he would have one job. And so, carving the meat becomes a display of your kind of largesse, your richness, your wealth, your masculinity. And so, as households shrink, you know, houses get smaller, you have less and less servants, that changes. And so, now we're in houses with no servants. There's still a sense of carving as skill. Mm. Cooking, it's like, you know, the whole thing of women cook, men are chefs. And I know that's a cross thing, but there's that dis- difference here. And so carving maintains a kind of skill, but cooking a roast chicken really well with stuffing and everything clearly doesn't quite happen. Oh, no,
0: not at all. What I love is that this is just exactly the, the, the relationship to my parents when at, at Christmas time, my mum will cook everything, um, but the turkey is the man's job and what i love is that for the last four years running something has fucked up with the turkey and it's just like it's beautiful because it's just just watching this kind of like patriarchal figure just crumble under the pressure of a bad turkey just oh it makes christmas worth it
1: and there's a nice thing as well isn't there that there's enough vegetarians in my extended family now to mean that there's no point buying the 400 pound turkey it's a turkey crown and everybody suddenly realizes, why did we not always have a turkey crumb? This is so much easier. Mm. It comes in its own little tray. You put it in the oven. You take it out of the oven. It doesn't take up the whole oven. You have to go up at four in the morning. And...
0: We have to provide our, like, nut roast or quiche or whatever it is, because my parents are like, oh, we don't have time to deal with your vegetarian nonsense at Christmas. Um, but then every year when the turkeys failed, they're always like, oh, that looks, that looks quite, could I try some? It's like, absolutely not. Fuck yeah. off. <laughs> You, you lay in your turkey bed.
2: <laughs> it was glorious. The first Christmas, because um, my parents went vegetarian after, you know, making me cook for myself since I was a teenager. Um, the first Christmas, my brother turned up and, they were, and we had a vegetarian Christmas. Oh, it was such a joy. My brother couldn't handle it. Such a win.
0: <laughs> As Helen Cezoo writes in The Laugh of the Medusa,
2: for a woman to gain her
0: power, she must become
2: a... I think that one of the big things that we talk about like me and and eating meat and stuff is this kind of fundamental relationship between sort of human and animal, you know, and sort of where the boundary lies, what's cannibalism and what's eating meat. Um, so we're wondering what happens then when the relationship between human and animal goes a little bit further and becomes physical. Like, what does bestiality tell us about being human?
1: Well, I mean... Okay, going back historically, there was a belief that certain animals could crossbreed with humans. And they were perceived to be the animals that made uh, that had sex face to face because, of course, that's how humans have sex. We all know that. And so a bear... There's no other position. No, no. A bear... Um, and the women on the bottom, yeah. ...to be able to crossbreed with a human. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> well, if it was a lady bear, obviously, no. I mean... That's what I was saying earlier. Can oh, you top a cow? I don't know, like... But, but actually, when you go into the legal cases, because I have studied this, this is, you know, you've, you've asked the right person. One of the legal cases, it was always horses or cows, usually horses. And there would be, because the law says, did you actually, or not, not in these words, but the basic, the law in the 17th century was, did you witness penetration? And so you find one man who defends himself brilliantly in the legal deposition by saying, I thought about having sex with the horse, but God be praised, I decided against it at the last minute. <laughs> and that's how he defends himself. So it's not, oh, my God, are you kidding? Of course I would never have sex with a horse. <laughs> he says he had the thought but didn't perform the act. And because, you know, in the depositions of people who've seen or allege that they've seen somebody having sex with an animal, well, they'll say things like, he pulled the horse into a ditch. So that so then like, there's a real sense that he stood on a stool. Because, you know, you've got to get... He had a ritual. Right. (laughs) To be able to make it a legal case. So, um, I'm glad you asked me.
2: I mean, related to that, um, we are wondering, I mean, if you could both feed into this, whether, you know, if we're thinking about modern examples of bestiality, can we ask a serious question about David Cameron fucking a pig's head? So, from Mm. an animal studies perspective... What was going on there? Could we maybe have like a cultural analysis of that Burlington <coughs> Club
3: banter? Like what's going on there? Did the, can I just ask you a point of clarification because I just can't remember now. Did the Black Mirror episode come out before or after? It came up I mean? before, it came up before. That's why
0: everyone was like, oh my God, they they, they knew about this.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah.
3: I guess I think was interesting because I think it's interesting to hold the Black Mirror episode and the actual act mm-hmm. in comparison, in kind of contrast and comparison with each other, right? Because I feel like the question for me about the fucking the pig's head is who who is being humiliated here, mm, yeah. right? Is it the pig or is it David Cameron? And I think that you know. This, depending on wh- what angle or what perspective you're looking at that from, I think that could go either way, right? Because on one hand, of course, there is this kind of um, uh, jolly, Bullington, misogynist uh, nonsense at stake here, right? In which, you know, a Carl Adams, um, you know, the pig is standing in, in this case, for the woman, right? This is like, He's fucking a pig's head, but that's also, you know, the pig's head is standing in for something else there, right? But then you take another angle and look at it in a different way, which I think is more present in that Black Mirror episode, in which David Cameron is the one who is degraded by the act in which he's, that he's, you know, is this an act? I guess I'm wondering, I guess my question about it is, do we see this as an act Did did he see it as an act and has it been reported as an act of his dominance or his humiliation?
1: No, I think that's the crucial thing, isn't it? If if he kind of did it because it's a joke and that's what him and his Bullingdon mates do, then that says one thing about him, whereas if actually it was a hazing ritual and he didn't want to get involved in it, but he was forced to do it, In, in a sense, that kind of makes him innocent because he's the one who lacks the agency
3: and also where does pleasure circulate in this you know is there something you know if he enjoyed fucking the pig's head that strikes me as something quite different or puts a kind of different sheen on it than if it is i don't know as you say a part of a hazing ritual in which you know this is ends up being a kind of a, a kind of embarrassing and unfortunate uh to his prime minister prime ministerial career yeah that was the real low <laughs> of, the, of the prime ministerial career i mean there was there's a number of lows but i think that no, was... no, that's, that's, that's definitely the
0: only one <laughs> <laughs> Well, i love is i've just i've just um gone to the wikipedia page uh for pig gates and it's very specific that like, inserted his penis and or testicles into a dead pig's mouth Wow. Um, so there's something interesting there in terms of like, it's, not, it's not fucking a dead pig. It was just insertion. Just Yeah, just... I
1: was going to ask how far did you go. But it's penetration and that's... Penetration and that yeah. is illegal. Uh... But can I say, <laughs> in terms of my career, the good thing about Piggate was History Today re-released for free my article on bestiality on oh, that amazing. very same day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, David Cameron. Cheers David
1: Cameron
2: for something. I think there's also something to be said for, like, I'm sure he wouldn't... If, Put those appendages into a live pig's mouth. I think there's a sort of power mm-hmm. thing there going on as oh, yeah. well. Well, a live pig's Of course you wouldn't. You'd be an absolute <laughs> idiot. We've all seen um, what's the terrifying, the
0: silence of the Lambs. Yeah, right? Hannibal. There's, there's the... a scene in that where they, know, yeah, Hannibal, and they, like, the pig, pigs eat you. Pigs
1: are, hmm, pigs can real fuck you up. But they're specially trained pigs. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Um, so, just to be clear, I don't think pigs usually eat Oh, but... uh, yeah. <laughs> um so alex has babe to- would be a very
0: different oh film. babe would be
2: <laughs> babe after dark um babe after <laughs> dark. <laughs> <laughs> babe, 18 no birds. i've never
1: seen babe Two because somebody told me there was a scene in a slaughterhouse i was just like
0: no oh, no kind of that. <laughs> I thought you were saying, no tell me about babe Two because it's all about them eating people I was like, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right i'm really sorry i have to run but we like to ask as a very final thing is there anything that you are up to at the moment that you would like our dear listeners to be
3: made aware of <laughs> no, nothing. Literally nothing. Um I don't have anything.
1: I'm going to uh go to a seminar on colonial animals next. Oh, um, that's my life today. So but in reality I am thinking about worms. Awesome. Um, mm. Renaissance worms, obviously, because other worms aren't Do they awesome. are Darwin's worms. Erica. Come on then. You yeah, say yeah, that. You say that.
2: Do you have any
3: articles or anything that you want us to? Um, I just had an article out with um, Literature and Medicine on um, vegetarian restaurants in culture and fiction and culture in the late 19th and early 20th century. So, yeah, lots of cranks, all the cranks, queers, <laughs> sandal wearers in there again. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Cool. I've just got an essay out in the Routledge companion to animals and Shakespeare on horses in Richard II. There's no eating, unfortunately, but um, yes. no, Joking. actually no. Sorry, I I've let you down. That Hold on. <laughs> What's the point? What's the point? <laughs> we got you onto
2: the
0: film. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> we will add those to our show notes um awesome
1: well no i, I can say that my mum said to me when i have my history my article on history today published on bestiality people actually read history today it turns out like <laughs> the rest of your academic career and my mum said very sadly to me i used to be able to tell people you wrote about shakespeare okay? <laughs> <laughs> But I also went to the History Today 50th birthday anniversary party where they invited every living contributor, so there were some Maybe. quite eminent historians, and we all had our name badges on, and people were going around saying things like, hello, Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, oh, ah, that's right. <laughs> and so I was going around going, hello, best <laughs> <laughs> This is what we're here for. Incredible. <laughs>
0: Even Long My Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews.
2: No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing LawmyPraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at LawmyPraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter P for piggy. And the number three. Our shape this week is a big cow. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.